Welcome to Ramble City. Look, it is tricky. It's actually cultural, I think, because um, people don't go and see shows they don't know. That's why everyone loves adapting movies. Yeah. So they don't go and see new things. Um, and so then you're relying on people to program it so that people will see it, but people generally don't want to see it. So, you know, of course, the, the great... It's a cowboy thing as well, like all, yeah. all theatre. Like, if you do well, you earn, you know, a million dollars a week because you wrote Hamilton. You go, well, great, great, you know. And I believe that's a good 10 years. <laughs> and you go, well, that was worth it. That's not McDonald's. What does the term artist mean? How and where do we learn how to be one? And how do artists actually support themselves and others in a community and business that can be isolating, competitive, and often terribly rewarding? Hello, Bradley McCaw here. Welcome to this week's episode of Ramble City. Today's guest is Tyron Park, Australia's award-winning singer, actor, director, and he's actually the current head of music theatre at the Victorian College of Arts, also known as VCA, and is the executive producer of the Australian Musical Theatre Festival. Now, this chat was recorded in his office at VCA in Melbourne in 2019, and it's one of the more personal episodes I've released so far. It focuses more on theatre and musical theatre, and we dig deep into how we feel about writing, about being artists and making art in Australia. If you're enjoying the program, maybe take a moment to go and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. Five star would be great. Share this episode with a friend or an enemy. Nothing upsets an enemy more than listening to a really great podcast. And a quick side note, if you do, uh, if you are interested in musical theatre, I do reference my first musical in this program, Becoming Bill. So if you want to hear more about that show or the music from that, then you can find out about that in the show notes. Lastly, this episode all came about from a phone conversation that Tyron and I had while I was sitting in an airport bar. He was, we were on the phone. He just finished work and we were talking about a project that I was trying to develop and the advice that he gave me was so great, so interesting and informative and I learned so much and we had so much fun. I asked him to come on the show and if he would share that with you. So we cover some of that in this episode and also name drop some of our favorite colleagues and idols, including Tyron's friendship with the one and only Hal Prince. But We begin with something I didn't expect, which was uh, a list on the wall of Tyron's office, which was the five performers that can sing and cry at the same time. What a cliffhanger. I'm Bradley McCaw and this is Ramble City. Welcome to Ramble City. I'm just going to say, am I allowed to look at these things on the wall here? Is this some of course you are. There's inside no secret, secret artistic business going on here. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> coming up that we can't know about. Hang on, I see names. One of them is uh, Bernadette Peters. Do you see what that list says? And you're on that list. Do you see what the list says? This what does it say? It says, the five performers in the world who can cry and sing at the <laughs> same time. This is the official list that we came up with one night with Jason Langley and Ilaria Rogers, both wonderful directors and were in this office. And we started talking about this moment where people cry on stage and yeah. how it affects their voice. And then we put a list together we said, and I said, it's like Bernadette Peters. And then uh, we went, oh, there's Brittany Shipway. She's fantastic. Jason said, I can do it. And I said, well, actually, I can do it as well. <laughs> um, and so both of us got on our own list. And then the last one says, because we were, I have to confess, we're having a drink at the time. <laughs> and the last one says, uh, I forgot the, who the last one is, but it's not Yularia, who was here with us. She said, I can't do it. <laughs> we know that there's a fifth one out there in the world. It was not Bernadette Peters. My, oh, actually, I remember just then. It's it Genevieve Lemon. That's oh. who he said. It's Genevieve Lemon. What, is, what does this mean? So it's people that can cry and sing at the same time. What does that mean? So their voice doesn't get all, like, strangled when they sing. Because, you know, when you see people on the edge of tears and then you go, oh, it's gone too far and they don't sing well anymore. Yeah. You know, Bernadette Peters does it all the time. Yeah. She, like, sings through the tears. And I'm like, and I said, oh, I could do that. Yeah, that's, that's like. That's fine. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's nothing. Uh, I'm sure there are more than five. <laughs> no, but, but that was the official list that was made that night. Is this a reference that you use when you're talking know, to people and working with them? I don't know why it other. ended up there. It ended up there as part of. Look, this is actually, I have a big thing about community in the theatre. Yeah. And uh, I started a thing called Tuesdays with Tyron. Yeah. And people come by on a Tuesday evening 
and uh, watch you sing and cry. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, 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 no. Like, like this. Like this. Exactly. <laughs> it's like a new method. That's right. <laughs> classes. Oh my god. No, 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 no. It, but it was just you know I, I love having directors hang and talk because um, I find it a very lonely experience and so I go great well come after rehearsals and come to my office and we'll have a glass of wine and talk about the important things like who can sing and cry at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> do you have you always been your community like is that something that you yeah. felt over time that you yeah. found or yeah it's always about that or even the shows that I pick are about that right that's why I like your writing oh shucks no seriously I'm glad we got to that to the top <laughs> the top of the show so everyone hears that show from the get go <laughs> no it's what it's the thing that makes me it's not that I don't like other writing but yeah. I tend not to well I just I don't find my way in as well to other writing so it's always about family of some sort yeah yeah yeah. I've always been passionate about that too I've it's felt like an accidental thing and you go oh that's actually what I do best in a sense mm. you know when you start to look mm. at your own your own mm. work Nick Enright, who taught most of us at some point, we're all yeah. one degree away from Nick Enright. In fact, even in our discussions, you and I are talking, I feel like I'm sure I'm channeling Nick Enright. Yeah. Even though I'm not sure Nick and I had those exact conversations, but Nick obviously was an extraordinary playwright, and screenwriter, and won a Tony Award for Boy From Miles on Broadway. Um, we we used to talk a lot about, about his plays. He said they're all about family plays he said that's what they're all about that's what he writes about that's the thing that he riffs on in his life mm. um i don't know his own personal response to that because i'm not that close to my family yeah I, I love them but i'm not that close to them i'm lead a busy kind of self-absorbed artistic life <laughs> um and uh and so but you know it is the thing that comes out in my work yeah but i guess Family is one thing and community is another, I guess, is it? Look, I, or is it just the construct, the idea of a family and the idea of community, and they're kind of the same thing but just we view them as certain things? I think they it? are for me because I don't have a family. I don't have an yeah. immediate family. I don't have a partner. I don't have children. There's no room for that in my life, and yeah. I did make a choice about that at some point. Yeah. Um, and so the theatre, you know that thing that everyone loves about theatre? I mean, I think when you're young, you don't love the integrity of the story. You love <laughs> that you're dressing up with all your mates. Yeah, that's so And then true. you all love yeah. each other and you all go through this extraordinary thing and then you say goodbye. And I even love the goodbye. I love the bittersweet. I love the um, element of that. Uh, it just kind of speaks to me, but it's interesting because it speaks to me in a very different way now that I'm a director. Yeah. And it's not as present. So I've had to, in my life, make sure that, I fulfil my own community requirements um, elsewhere, not not in the theatre. Because there's a ritual too about it, like I'd never really realised until you just said that, which is the idea of then going on this journey as the artist or the actors with all these other people and you go into that kind of that deep mm. shadow world and you come out the other side together. It's kind of, mm. I mean. It's, and you fall in love. And you, you, know, yeah, you, you, yeah. you fall in love with the thing that you're making because you make something. It's like any create creating anything you you incubate this thing and then you create it and then you go into the next one and there's a loss in that and I, I mean I love all of it including the loss yeah hmm. I feel like it's a bit of an addiction for me at this point in mm -hmm. time oh, oh I, I uh, maybe that's I'm a wrong way to put it I'm a junkie yeah I just I, I say to people I once <laughs> like 10 years ago when someone asked me to write a show and then that was it ever since then slowly but surely it's got to this point where I, I that's all that's my first thought at the mm -hmm. top of the day mm -hmm. as long as you know, my immediate family who I am close with mm -hmm. is okay, yeah. then it's, so what am I working on today? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. that's it. And then let's go get a coffee. That's yeah. it. Or wine, depending on the time of the day. That's <laughs> yeah. my day. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I share that entirely. I mean, I, as a lot of people know, I'm a, I'm a huge, like how Prince is my almost God. I mean, sometimes my God, but. Um, but you just say that for legal reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> the um, community will not accept. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, but Hal Prince, I mean, I've always just loved his thing of he starts his next show the day after opening. Yeah. He's always done it. So it's been, okay, next show. I actually start them, they overlap usually. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. I don't have that luxury of just going, hold off and I'll be ready at that point. <laughs> um, so they sort of overlap, but I love it. I, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Way to do it. Do you think that the sense of the projects overlapping is says more about the Australian industry? as opposed to maybe the Broadway machine or the kind of the commercial, the, the, just the realities of our, of our industry compared to that, if we're working in the coalface here, do you think? I suppose the other thing about when I refer to Hal, 
and I can call him Hal. Can you believe it? Why is that? Well, because we're friends. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. I know. I know. Uh, that's all right. There's we no just had to get there at no some way point. I'm having these conversations without these things coming up. But, you have to. Um, oh, but um, it's I'm, better I'm, than me outright asking, isn't it? Uh, but I also have to say, <laughs> it's not anything exclusive to me. There are a lot of people that you know, John O'May, who he directed in. Evita came to the VCA the other night and saw four of the Red Menace and he said to me, well, Hal always said this piece. And I was like, of course, of course. And when I see Hal, he says, how's John? How's Nancy Hayes? How He asks how all these people are. But anyway, the th- I think the difference is um, that when Hal set up that thing, Hal's interest is in new musicals. That's mm. what he, yeah. when he talks to me, he doesn't say, how is your production of Ordinary Days going? He goes, what is the next thing? The next thing. Where, where are we moving forward to as, as, a, um, as a discipline, as, a, as an art form? Um, so he would have had the ability to go, okay, Kandra and Ebb, yes, I'm doing that show. We'll start at the day after I finish the song. I mean, the, the other thing I say to him is, you know, he says, oh, you know, you just talk to writers and he sits in, he sat in a diner and he spoke to writers. And I was like, yeah, yeah, but the writers sitting next to him with <laughs> Kander and Ebb and Bock and Harnick and it's Steve. The and Sod- and, it's the canon. It's the canon. What the, who, what was that diner? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm going to the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, it's pretty cool to, I, I have no return to that. I mean, I have a dentist. That I go to. He asks me how I am. Well, I, uh, it's been interesting for me. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking because Hal does talk about who are the writers and and I care passionately about new writing um, and I'm doing everything I can to explore it and support it and writers, even more than new writing, write, writers. Um, but I thought for a long time I had to go and try and find my Sondheim and now I kind of go, I think I just have to try and be the Hal Prince to every writer that I find. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you just don't know. You don't know who who's going to stumble across an idea that's really interesting. Um, and I'm not saying I don't know because then I go, I want to be there. Like, I, I have to be part of it. But you just don't know what... I'm just hoping that when the person comes up with the idea that suits them, they've also had the experience... And some level of training, which is almost impossible to do in this country oh, about how to put things together. It's so true. This is why, like, to speak personally, I would say that why I've had one show and then I'd get that to a point and I'd go off and do another thing because I clearly I'd look at it in the face of day and I'd go, I don't know how to solve yeah. this, whether I am not talking to the right people at that point mm-hmm. in time. But I know this idea works, but I don't have the skills to be able to complete this. And then there, some, there's been some uh, different people on the way that would say, oh, no, you have to be able to complete it. You just put it up and they go, well, I don't feel like it's that simple because the idea deserves mm. more than that. Mm. To, and to, be, to, to know that you've done your best with it and to know that it's been realised and fully realised, whether people then like it or not, it's another thing. But yeah. at least you've done the idea justice. And yeah. I've been really aware of that. And I can feel in the conversations we've had over the last six months that I feel, I could feel you sort of really saying, this is, this is how I see it all. Pick the bones out of all this and just keep getting better. Like, and that's, mm. I think that's, was exciting to, to talk to someone in that way because you go, yeah, we can do this. We can mm. actually, we can yeah, have, we have not the great Australian musical. I don't yeah. really sort of agree. That's yeah. awful to sort of put down on, on yeah. thing, but I think we can just tell great stories and do it really well. I agree. I think the tricky part about it, I think part of what you speak to is that we don't have a culture of the process of developing musicals. And so people either get them on very quickly Mm. um, and sometimes that's okay. So one of the Australian musicals I did was Love Bites by um, Peter Rutherford and James Miller. It's a fantastic piece that was written in two weeks because something got cancelled. And I went, let's write something. (laughs) Sometimes the pressure of time is remarkable. However, the whole notion of that piece isn't a through composed story. I don't think you could write that in two weeks. Like yeah. It's segments. It's it's a song cycle. Yeah. Um, and it works beautifully. Uh, but most shows have to go through the really tricky process. And when you're the one putting the energy behind that and instigating the kind of desire for it without a lot of support or help and that's what's really hard. You're going to go, where does it go? I, one of the writers that I admire very much is Gary Young. And he wrote Sideshow. Uh, oh, I want to say Sideshow. That's Sideshow Alley. Yeah, yeah. Sideshow Alley. 
side shows and Siamese twins. Um, yeah, that's he wrote, the Willie like, Russell one. Yeah, he wrote... <laughs> Same guy. We didn't know that. You reveal it. You heard it here first. On. Oh, yeah. He wrote Sideshow <laughs> Alley. Um, he won a Helpman Award yeah. for Best Musical, a Best New Work, uh, but no one's done it since. And so you go, you're really relying on the writer's own desire to see something on stage driving them yeah. without... I mean, if you know, it, it, if you did the sums and you worked out the hourly rates, you know, everyone should just go to McDonald's and, and work there. Yeah, yeah. You, and I think that's tricky. All right, so let's talk about story. This is something we had a chat about this a while ago. Mm-hmm. How do you? What? How do you think about story? How do I think about story? Look, I'll answer generally in okay. the whole, in like I'll, I'll answer big picture because okay. I am on record as saying something very dramatic and kind of full <laughs> of, you know, story is my religion. And it actually, like it's the thing I believe in more than anything. Um, and what I mean by that is you go, that doesn't mean anything. You can't believe in story. What does that even mean? But, you know, years ago um, when I was having a really tricky time in my life and I'd just broken up with my long-term partner and that was done, I went and walked to the Camino de Santiago across Spain. Have you heard of that? No. Uh, they call it Camino de Santiago de Compostela. Um, and it's an ancient pilgrimage. It's okay. a religious pilgrimage. And I'm not religious. Um, there's a big story that would take the rest of the podcast, but I won't give you that. But, you know, basically it was in the background of my life for a while. And wanting to go do Wanting this. to go do okay. it. Yeah. And thinking, oh, you'll never do that. You, you know, that will never happen. And so when I decided it would happen... I went because I was brokenhearted and a lot of people go for big reasons, people in their family that have died or they're dying or it's quite a big, yeah. you've got to walk a thousand kilometres. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's essentially Forrest Gump is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Same Okay, so Same Forrest Gump with subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And really good wine. <laughs> oh, um, so I am, um, it was just, it was just interesting to me that I would spend the mornings, I had a really strict regime. The mornings were spent walking by myself and the afternoons were spent meeting whoever was nearby who I could walk with for a while. And as a result, I heard people's stories of their lives. And there were a lot of different religions and there were a lot of people who were walking the walk because of a religion that contradicted the person I would walk with the next day. And there'd be, and people, it was enough for people to fly across the world and walk this thing. And the story they had was just really interesting. Mm. And it was how they framed the narrative of their life. And I remember thinking, none of these people are right. No one can be right here. But they believe it enough to go, that is the way I will, that's the best story to live my life by. Mm. And I, during the walk, and it's a very long conversation, but during the walk, realised that I had certain things that I wanted to... I went, well, if it's all just a story, I'll just make up the best one. Yeah. I'll make up the best one of how it make, what I think makes me a good person. Um, and so for me, it's sort of at the heart of everything. Um, and, you know, being someone who, who lives his life primarily in music theatre, um, although I do obviously do theatre and I write as well, although that's secret, um, I'm, we'll cut that out. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, it's the only thing I'm interested in the theatre. It's yeah. the only thing. Yeah. It's why I get really uninterested. Like, for instance, right now I'm doing this Sondheim show. Okay. It's a concert. Yeah. And, you know, the last, I've got the most spectacular eight people you can imagine. Yeah. Brilliant cast. Yeah. Just you go, oh, God, amazing. I could sit and I could just watch them do sing Sondheim material. It actually gets very uninteresting to me to see everybody do their show, their party piece. I just go... Okay, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it many times before. So I couldn't help but create a concert that has all these links that to me are about there's parent-child and then there's partners and what it is to, to, to um, connect and what it is to feel a lack of connection and then ultimately what it is to connect to, you know, an old white man in New York who's in his 80s and us in Melbourne at this time. Anyway, no one's going to get that. But for me, it's very important that underneath it, we as a group of people know what we're trying to say. And that has story, you know, like even if it's just a concert. Yeah. It just is the thing that I guess when I've seen unsuccessful music theatre particularly, it's when people are doing their thing 
And I'm like, yeah, sure, but that doesn't connect to me. I get impressed by it, but I don't get connected by it, <clears throat> excuse me, until it's um, about how it affects somebody else and what with the pursuit of story. So, so as a director and as building a concept that everybody is kind of or a platform, could, mm-hmm. I, could I call it that? Mm-hmm. Like that everyone gets on board with mm-hmm. and even if it's not something that really is felt cognitively, it's something that people feel they're stepping into. Is that kind of? Yeah. Look, it crosses over. I mean, I never really thought of myself as a director, but even as an actor, I was always like, well, what is this moment about? That's my job as an actor to go, what what is this moment? Who's this? Is it mine? Is it hers? Who's in charge of it? How does it work? Um, I, I guess my job is to, as a director, is to clarify the story that I want to tell through this text. Yeah. And sometimes you see directors tell stories that don't quite suit the text. Yeah. I mean, I thought, I think I stretched it about as far as it could go with Barnum yeah. um, because I didn't think the story was particularly well enough written. Yeah. And I didn't care enough. 40 years on, I didn't care enough about Barnum. I don't care who he is. No, it's, it's you know, the biggest thing that goes on in his life is lose his wife. Very sad, but not my wife. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. you go, what, what am I on board here? What do I care about? And, yeah. you know, for me, I wanted to tell the story of what happens when people have a degree of power that they get irresponsibly through lying because I think that's an interesting story in this day and age. Just look at our world leaders and you go, that's a story. Mm. Um, and I think that's about as far as Barnum could be stretched without bending it out of shape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it becoming something else. But it's always my perception of what a story is trying to say and why I love working with writers is that you you try and clarify. You can, just, you can only ever come from your own experience. You must find that when you're writing yeah. characters. You go, yeah. well, this is me if I was that and this is me if I was this person and yeah. had these set of given circumstances. So um, I, I find it really exciting working with writers because it's all about the clarity of the story and what is tricky um, and you felt this yourself because you write such spectacular music, which is your great, great gift and your Achilles heel because, I hope I can say this, because you, um, it's so wonderful. And then you get up and then you sing amazingly. Like I was watching the other night and I was like, it's like Billy Joel or something. Yeah, yeah, amazing music. And, you know, the challenge is to make them care more about the story mm. than the soaring mm. melodies and the amazing voice and, the, you know, like, that's where there's real value. There's mm. there's great value in the other, but not necessarily over a two and a half hour evening. No, and like the 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 point of like greatest truth is kind of in right in that center, which is the person watching cares about this. And mm. You can only get so much if you're impressed, which Absolutely. is the biggest thing that I just took away from what you said. It's like, sure, this is impressive, but mm. if it's really going to move me, I'm going to need to care. And people don't care in the theater. I'll yeah. be really, I mean, I yeah. spend a lot of time in the theater just looking around. Yeah. And going, everybody could be watching the TV. They've got the same engagement. Yeah. Whereas I know that when you see those really great, you know, you have them, we all have them, those moments where you go, oh, my God, I'll never forget, you know, being in the theatre that first time I saw um, Death of a Salesman with Alan Armstrong at the National Theatre or actually every time Philip Cost walks on stage or, you know, like what, what is the, yeah. one of those moments? They're there because you lose yourself and you're so engaged and I'm finding more and more people are, are not, and that's my little mission. Yeah, to solve that. Do you think that's the modern day? I think the modern day will only help us because as people get more disconnected, it's interesting to watch real life people. Yeah, that's my hope. Yeah. Is that as wow. we get that's more and more interested in like Netflix, um, which is I'm told fantastic. I don't have it. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm told it's fantastic. As we get more and more engaged in that, it's going to be a different experience to breathe the same air as actors and to have that, and I think it'll be heightened. And you talk about story, that's where we come from, around the campfire, mm. all the great artists that I love, that's what they love about it. Mm. That there's something in telling that's these stories primal. that we're all coming together to mm. learn something mm. and to go about our, go about our day. I have, my, on my days that I feel, um, you know, despondent, I have a, a little folder in my computer of beautiful messages that people have sent me. And one of them is from my, my best friend, Queenie Vanders, and it's a voice message at the end of Big Fish. And I made a very conscious start at the start of Big Fish that the actors would walk down the aisle and stand in front of the audience as if to say, we're about to tell a story. Mm. And Queenie on this message says, oh, my God, I burst into tears. It reminded me. She said, I cried from that moment. <gasps> They're going to tell me a story and I'm going to use it to understand something in my life. 
that I, I need to clarify. And that was a lot of people's response to Big Fish and then it goes on and on. It's really lovely that it did that to her. But that's part of, part of what I'm trying to do is work out actor as storyteller, director as storyteller. Getting everyone on the same page is tricky and clarifying stories is really hard. Yeah, and like coming at it from a different angle, like whether you're a director or a writer or an actor, your experience kind of shapes how you see the cogs all turning together in yeah. some fashion. Yeah. Do you can you remember a time in which the way you thought about it as an actor, which may have shifted to when you were wearing your director hat more or your singer hat more, or mm. do you, and do you think that having all of these feathers, you know, in your hat means that you can you see it uniquely? Do you think, as opposed to someone that was maybe just more a director, or mm. are we all kind of all things at all times in a in a sort of silly way anyway? You know, is everyone kind of done everything yeah. enough? You know, it's a big, long-winded. Yeah, no, question. I think I think like I never knew I was a director, but everybody else did. It was a bit like being gay; everybody knew before me. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, okay, great. Okay, now you tell me. I'll come round to it. <laughs> yeah. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know I was a director. I would have been horrified at the idea. But the thing you were saying before, when you were saying the concept or what, when you were trying to find the word, I was like, don't say the word vision because <laughs> it's, it's the thing that has scared me off being a director. Still does. Why the wankiness of it? Uh, because I don't have it. Yeah, right. In what I thought uh, it looked uh, like. You don't see a vision? I is that thought, what you meant? Well, I thought everyone had this thing that I didn't have. Yeah, which right. Which is why I, stopped, why I went, well, I'm not a director. Yeah, But wow. now I actually go, I hear myself say, it's just weird to me because I saw her go over there and not there. So then I spent, and I go, oh, you just actually used the word. So I understand it now in a kind of slightly more general context. But um, I think, you know, as an actor, I didn't understand acting when I was at university. It's what I say to my BCA students. I didn't get it. It took some time out that I went, oh, that's what that meant and that's what that meant. And then I became interested in, just from an actor, good acting technique, um, which is all about story. Mm. And then I realised that I didn't have vision, but I could get a bunch of actors in a room and just immediately go to the heart of the story. So one of the things we do here at BCA is we go to New York every year. We go to Broadway. I take 20 students um, and we had amazing people, people like Audrey McDonald and John Doyle and Lonnie Price and amazing people teach them. And Lonnie always says, he's a great director, he directed a whole bunch of Broadway stuff, he always says, what is this song about? And I used to say it, I've realised I've stopped saying it. And, you know, some of the students will go, oh, well, this is Jack who's just climbed up the beanstalk and done the thing. You go, yeah. Lonnie knows. Yeah, he yeah. knows. Yeah, yeah. He's saying, what is it about? What is that about? And, you know, Giants in the Sky is about adolescence and one foot in adulthood and one foot in childhood. That's what the song is about. You think of all of the things you've seen and you wish that you could live in between. It's about that. It's not about a fucking beanstalk. Yeah. You know, we, can I swear on this podcast? Of course you can. Uh, <laughs> I can't help talking about story. If I get, if I want to you get passionate story, and then I that's where the expletives come in. I swear. <laughs> Seriously, no one in VCA can sing I oh, Want a Beautiful Morning, but as soon as I get them to sing I oh, Want a Beautiful Fucking Morning, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, so um, I guess what I'm saying is it's part of my job in every way to go, what is this song about? Not what the, you know, then I, then I understand how to shape it. Um, and, you know, I believe we should be aware of the resonances of story and how they're changing and shifting. And Jason Langley just directed Flora the Red Menace here at VCA and, and you know, it was written in the 60s and his view on it, because the world has changed, has shifted the story a bit, same as I was talking about Barnum, and I think that's really important as well. Yeah. It puts things in... Just a, a, a place in which people see it for well, what resonates today. The audience are going to be watching it from today, not from when it was written. They're yeah. today's audience watching it. Because there's some shows that I see sometimes because I spend all my time in you as well and that's what I'm most passionate about. But I'll see a show and I'll go, I don't like you'd say, this isn't speaking to me. I'm not really enjoying this. I'm mm. not really getting anything out of it. And then sometimes obviously you're tricked and then all of a sudden you care about the character and you go, oh, okay, well, I see what happened there. They got me. Yeah. But sometimes it's, it, it's just maybe just dated. Do you yeah. think? And it's just not relevant. You go, well, I don't really care about them anymore. That was a problem then. It's not a problem now. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of our, I mean, I think the really great material is written about the kind of things that doesn't date, you know. How come we see Hamlet every year, year after year? You know, there are things that you go, that is part of the human condition that's not going to shift. Well, it's out of copyright, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> then there's that as well. Um, 
But you go, you know, there are, there are always those things. There are other, other things that you go, ooh, ouch. You know, I'm doing a play next year, a commercial play that has a section at the end that I go, I don't think we can do those four, four or five lines. In the era, that the climate that we, in the post Me Too era, and nor should we have back then, but we didn't know. Yeah. Um, and I'm clearly... Or we didn't talk about it. Yeah. It's kind of how I think about sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, I mean, I'm coming from a from a position of being a, a, a white male director in theatre. Like, there's not much more of a narrow pursuit of privilege anywhere in the world. Like, you go, really? So, you know, it wouldn't have occurred to me 20 years ago. Um, but now I look at that piece and I go, it is how you look at it. I think Bart Scher in New York, who's done a lot of the big revivals, is quite remarkable at that. If, if, if you look at his production of My Fair Lady, and he was determined to understand the story through Eliza's eyes. Yeah. Determined. He was like, she's the clever one, actually. Mm. She's the one that transforms herself. They would just sit around and drink wine and go, oh, dear. And, you know, that. Like, couldn't possibly. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and watching that production and what he did with it as opposed to the recreation of it that happened here the year earlier yeah, was kind of remarkable. And, and his take was still the same story, but his angling of that story, I felt very comfortable that every young woman in that audience would identify with it and be moved by it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And on the other hand, probably the guys seeing it, a new take on this Completely. thing, you go... Completely. This is not how I remember this story. <laughs> I Absolutely. don't remember this. Absolutely. And so you know, what yeah. about what, what about when then when you're when you're writing or when you're working with writers? How do you how how do you see the construction of a story and where do you what is kind of at the heart of how you kind of see these things tick? What are the cogs that kind of you sort of try to tap into to let it kind of move itself? Mm. You? Well, look, it's always about. And I think this is where writing is very hard because often you you write and it reads well across the page, but um, what is it about? Like just what I was saying about the song, what is it about? As soon as you know what a show is about, the process of editing is so much easier yeah. because you know what you're trying to say. So you go, well, that doesn't say it, that can go, or that would say it better. But if it's just this is great dialogue <laughs> or this is a great... Then you're sort of going, well, it's all great. It's all, you know, it's fine, but it doesn't build to the whole thing. So I think knowing what it is you're trying to say, and sometimes you only know in the writing, which is really hard. Yeah, because sometimes it, it's you don't know that you don't know. Of course. So what's that about? Well, I guess. What? Is that just experience? Is that just because you have to, is it all just because we're picking up a tradition? Musical theatre, Playwriting, there's with you know all these things that aren't weren't Australian traditions. We have we've yeah. picked them up from other places in the world that have a long, vast tradition of you know Greek theatre. Yeah, you know all these Japanese theatre, all these different things. We didn't we, we don't have Australian theatre mm. in our kind of colonial sense, if I can say mm. that way. Mm. We've got you know, mm. um, yeah. So do you think that that's why we just don't know? Because maybe we. There's not enough of us that can do it on mass, or are we all just growing. What is? I think it's okay not just natural? to know sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that um, Australian writers all seem to do book lyrics, music, or or kind of pursue that. Whereas um, overseas, that's not encouraged or or pursued. Mm. Um, and what happens is, if you have collaboration, you have interrogation. Mm. So people go, you know, the other half of your partnership is going. So why are we doing, so what are we trying to come up with here? So what are we trying to say with this? Because I'm trying to match it. And mm. so suddenly it's already being developed. It's developed as a, and you go, oh, that's what this is about, that thing there. Um, so the process of interrogating and collaboration makes the thing. Completely. Yeah, wow. And I think sometimes you can know what you want to write about. You go, I want to write a thing about this, and you go and write it. Or you adapt something and go, it's about this. I think it's sometimes okay to write like I wrote a piece once called The Girl in the Green Hat um, that I pursued for a while and structurally it was quite good because um, that's the other thing is structure. We'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. Um, uh, but ultimately I thought the th I don't think I've really kind of, I always ask in one sentence, give me one sentence, what is it about? Yeah. 
So then I go, okay, and if you if you go, it's sort of about this, but with a bit of you know, and a, and, like that, and a thing with that kind of you know, and I think. Sorry, I are, go, you, are, you, are you quoting me now? No, is that is that what this is? No, <laughs> no, but it is interesting with you know the piece that we looked at of yours. It's like you acknowledge that there were you know there were a bunch of songs, mm. and and song cycles allow themselves to not entirely know. This is any moment for anyone listening at home, yeah. depending on when you're coming across this. But, yeah, oh, yeah carry on. Yeah. Just bring them into that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, excuse me. So If it's that, still called that. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, you know, it is about going, oh, and sometimes you go, that's the song of the show. Yeah. So why? Because the show should be about that. And the new kind of shape. You know, when I wrote Girl in the Green Hat, I wrote because it just, I had an instinct about it. I knew the character I was writing for. And I just, this wasn't a musical, it's a, it's a, a, a novel. Um, when I was writing it, I, I just knew who he was. I knew yeah. who Toby was through that journey and I knew what he was after, which is a big one for me, because that's what becomes stageable and that's what becomes dramatic and interesting. It's like, but what do they want? Yeah. What does the character want? And how does that help us tell the story that we're trying to tell? Those things sound really easy and they're really hard. So we've got like the idea that we want to tell, the idea and the theme that we're passionate about. And then that's all well and good, but that's not necessarily what the character needs to embody no, their journey. No. And there's there's almost like a separation of understanding or, or like this journey you've got to go on to go, I think this, but actually the character really against everything else that's happening needs to really be fighting for this. Mm. And it's the same ending, mm. you know. I remember one of the big things we talked about was I was like, yeah, but it's about community or whatever and you're like yeah but everything's about that you know what I mean it's like yeah but I'm you know if I put milk in my coffee it's coffee no dude it's already coffee you know like and that was kind of that was a big thing for me to take away because it was my enthusiasm and passion was was not well placed in a sense it was still well intended Mm, but it was kind of a misunderstanding that the purest form of something was the purest form of it or whatever. I'm, I'm getting yeah, a bit wordy the, now. But the, I mean, art is in the details. And yeah. I, I mean, you can't see this thing I'm drawing with my finger. But when I went and studied at Yale, there was a teacher who used to always just go, people would be talking and she would go, she'd make that noise it's and like she'd do a, a little shape. Z-shaped thing, right? And all that, I, she never explained it. I took it to mean get from one point to the next, to the next, to the next. What are we saying here? Like just clear all the clutter. It's like what I would say to an actor. It's impossible to perform if you're going, what I want in the scene is blah, 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 blah. Like, it's not useful to know. Like, that's backstory, but it doesn't help you go, this is what I'm, I'm after. Here to here to here to here. That's what we need to do. It's just it's just detail. It's just the detail of it. I mean, I get interested. You know, I, I remember our conversation, one of our first conversations, where I was trying to work out whether we would work well together. Like, if this was something you wanted to look at, and I said to you, what is your, well, give me a song from music theatre. And we pulled it apart in a way that I was. Can we do that process now for people listening? Because I found it so interesting. Yeah. Oh, you were about to do that. Oh, no, no, it wasn't actually. So wasn't let's pick yeah. one. Let's pick one out of the hat. Let's. Okay, we both have to know it. That's the only thing. Is, you know, and at home. So just think <laughs> about one. Let's do a magic trick also. Uh, pick, I don't know, obviously a famous one. You, you can. You can pick, see what you... Of course, all I can think about is the one we did. Okay. It's just running through my head. Um, uh, you know, and I, well, in this, I would like there to be somebody else on stage. Let's, can I just choose that one for a second? Of that course. Yeah, did. yeah. No one's so going to know. What you said... <laughs> I could just have made it up. Yeah. But you did say, uh, you said, nothing's going to harm you from Sweeney Todd. That's right, yeah. And I got very interested then about going, okay, great. So Sontan didn't write da- sit down to write a lovely ballad with pretty music that talks about fear or whatever. Um, in that song, Tobias, the character of Tobias in Sweeney Todd, has something he wants. I remember you and I talking, said, what is he after? Yes, he sings about that and about that, but what yeah. is he after? Yeah. He wants Mrs. Lovett to realise that the man that's living with them is a demon. Mm. And he's realised that. Now, there are so many obstacles to getting her to realise, to getting her to be on board with that. Yeah. One, she knows and is fine with it. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> Tobias doesn't know that. Um, but she knows and is fine with it. Um, he, Tobias, um, has some deficiency where 
it's not entirely explained, but he's not quick. People yeah. don't take him seriously. So him saying that guy's a monster, he's like a kid. Sure like, it is, honey. Yeah, yeah. Well, she says, of course not, dear. And why should it? You know, yeah. like that, nothing's going to harm us. Of course not, dear. They don't take him seriously. Um, he's also inarticulate. He's, so he's got all these things, but he's got to let her know because their lives depend on it. He's found out, and during the song he finds out more information that proves it, finds out he's got the purse. So it's even more important that he gets her to know that they are in danger. But she just keeps going, come over here and I'll make you a m- nice muffler. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so he's using every, you know, but in time nothing's going to harm you. You know, those notes are about, no, no, he's, you know, I'm going to have to do, you know, like listen to me. And, and the music s- drives up to this point where the actor is then going, to, reaching for this climactic yeah, note. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so that's through that whole piece that's what, you know, and there's a lot of dramatic tension because she realises that he's twigged. She starts to go, oh, of course not, dear. Nothing's going to harm you. You know, and so she's back trying on to him. stop him from telling her because she doesn't want to admit that she already yeah. knows. Yeah, and there's great tension in that. And at the end of it, she locks him in the bakehouse. She goes, we've got a problem. We're going to have to kill him. And that's what she decides. They go out later trying to find him to kill him, one assumes. So, you know, that's what's going on in that song. Um, Jeez, and it's pretty, though. <laughs> well, it's pretty. Um, it's Maybe that pretty. heightens its menace, like the, the menace in it. Or, yeah, and yeah. look, the, the versions of the show that I've seen that I love, uh, the melody is pretty because that's what Toby would Toby would sing. Nothing's going to harm you, not while I'm around. Like he would sing that. It's an innocence, mm. you know. Mm. But, and it gets... Da, ba, da, 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 da. Sorry, I'm not yelling in this mic, but um, <laughs> you know, it gets big. It gets, you know, it, yeah. two bubbles in it, two or three. You know, it, it's big because she's not listening to him and every note and every word, and I know this because I've done the Sondheim shows, leads you as an actor to going after what you want so mm. it's imminently playable. Yeah. Um, and it all serves the story. And that's that sort of... That, I think that is my job always with everything. And I, I, I mentioned Yelaria Rogers before, who was a, a great young director who I once, she was a student of mine, and I saw her in class being really good and thinking she's going to be a director. We'd sit together and someone would sing a song and we'd have 30 seconds to construct the best circumstances that that song could be sung in that would put the characters under pressure. Right, because that's what we all want in story. Yeah, we want to see characters under pressure. We don't want them to come on stage and tell us about what just happened and how bad it was. We want them to be. <coughs> oh, excuse me. They can do that on occasion if they if they come on stage and and then they're going. This just happened and now I'm under pressure. Yeah. But if they come on and go, that happened. And but as an audience, we want to see them in that yeah, yeah, because we, to... we can tap into it and sort of enjoy just like that in simmering. Life. Just like in life, when you're on the tram, you can't be bothered overhearing someone's conversation <laughs> if it's just like if it's boring, but yeah. if they're pressured, if something's going on, you go, what's happening over there? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I, but, I mean, people have written about story. People have written great stuff about story and, and you know, yeah. Robert McKee is, you know, his book is called Story. Yeah. And then it becomes about structure. And I try to be as clean as I can and then put mess in it. I try, I often say to writers, yes, but who's Luke Skywalker and who's Darth Vader? So I can just go, where is the where is the true conflict of like it's pitting that person against that person? It's Tobias against Mrs. Lovett in this scene. And they both they both Ding. can't win. They can't win. Yeah. Yeah, it's mutually exclusive what they want. She wants to shut him up and put him in the bakehouse to kill him later on. Yeah. He wants to tell her that they're in danger and they need to escape. Yeah. Right? They can't get what they want. They can't both get what they want. And so someone is going to leave with that, and that's where we're going. Tell me more. conflict. You know, it's all that yummy stuff. Yeah. So do you ever think about the archetypes and things like that? This is something that I've never really thought a lot about, but is that something that kind of ever comes across? Or is it just, is that kind of, sometimes I used to feel like that those things in my sort of, in in, in naivety, I guess, or I'm going to do it differently or kind of whatever Mm. adolescent kind of view that is, I used to, think that the archetypes, no, that's that's not really useful. And now I sort of start to think, you know what, it's kind of pretty true. <laughs> I'm really not that original, you know, like, but yeah. then in the actual and trying to work something out, 
sometimes it can be a little complicated to try and use that to help solve your problems. The idea of just what you're saying to me, that's why I found it so, uh, it really assisted me greatly, that conversation, which is why I was just so excited that you want to talk about it because I think it's, I think that simple idea or just the clarification of it makes it really tangible. You can go, oh, you're right. I don't get that. I can do that and I can then learn more about what needs to be there that isn't there. You know. And I think if you just look at the really, really well-structured films, if you look at Casablanca, if you look at Tootsie, Tootsie's a great film yeah, where the pressure gets more and more every scene. So you think about archetypes, you go, um, it's the thing I was trying to say before, I always believe in starting very cleanly and then putting mess in it um, because I just need to know who's on which side of the ring and what they're going for. And, of course, it's more nuanced than Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Sure. But if I can start writing with that perspective and then, of course, people change and adapt and people aren't entirely like that. But it does strike me as a good place to start because yeah. it, it just always is about conflict and that's the thing that we're interested in. If and understanding, not to interrupt you, but it sounds like you're saying once you understand that and that and then they go at it, then you put in all the detail that you're talking mm. about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, writers work in different ways and you've always got, you know, library cards with should this go there and should this go there and that, you know, yeah. all, all those things. And even when you're adapting pieces, you know, I know that um, uh, James and Pete adapted The Dressmaker from a novel and a film, um, but they had a, another workshop after their initial workshop just to work out what it actually was about. They must have known, but they found out it was something else, that their telling of it was something else or whatever that kind of was for them different to the book or the film yeah yeah and i think that's okay too oh yeah totally it's exciting isn't it yeah okay so let's take a slight detour then let's uh get off story boulevard and head on to Mm. artist lane (laughs) (laughs) do you so what do you think about being an artist do you like that word do you what do you think about the word artist do you find it sometimes i I find it i'll disclose i find it a bit wanky sometimes the idea of artist yeah. I feel like I don't relate to it sometimes. It feels just a, like just a word that doesn't really, uh, yeah. Not that that really means anything, but I think it sort of then how we work in kind of the just the everyday, the idea of an artist makes us seem like we should be doing something different than just doing the job. Does it that, feels, does that yeah. I mean, you probably just saw me go through many things as you were talking. That. Like I have a, a slight distaste of the word when applied to me but I actually want to interrogate that a little bit because I go, it feels pretentious. And then I go, why does it feel pretentious actually? Because one of the things that I lament about directing sometimes is that there's not enough time or respect given to each of the departments to remember that they're a craft. Mm. So the costume designer, that's a craft understanding how that works and how that tells story, yeah. how costume tells story. Like that's a real craft. Yeah, totally. Um, and I wouldn't for a moment say that they weren't artists. Or I wouldn't, you know what I mean? It's just a different. You're so right. So part of me goes, right. well, actually when you interrogate it, it, it you know, art isn't easy. <laughs> like it's it's never it's never going to be easy and, and, and it should It's, I, I, I think my own response to the word is deserves some level of interrogation and I'm, I'm not sure it's accurate because I think, well, you know, I, I really love at the moment that there's a new word in the last 10 years, which is theatre maker, because I don't really label myself as a director or a singer or an actor. Or, and there's a kind of theatre maker, which even people who are only directors um, that don't do other things, I go, that's interesting. But I particularly love it because I'm a teacher and because I'm a mm-hmm. all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I it encompasses everything. I, yeah, a theatre maker, a theatre maker. You make theatre. And because it looks so different, like Barnum looks completely different. I wrote a show last year, hilariously enough, called Woman, a mother of a cabaret. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I wrote it with a fantastic performer, Jodie, who, who still does it all over the place, had great reviews and all those things. Um, but... You know, it, it was creating a piece of theatre. Like, what is it to make theatre? It looked very that looked very different to what it looked like to make Barnum, to what it looks like to make Ordinary Days or Floor of the Red Menace or whatever. Um, but I did make all of those things just in different ways, and I like that. Yeah, it's like a, a person that makes a chair. They make chairs. Hmm. And I guess they're a carpenter, but they also just make yeah, yeah. Like, 
So I think I think over time I, I'm getting more. I also it's tricky because both of my brothers are visual artists. Yeah. So that feels like their term. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, it feels. And when we use it in that way, I go, oh, well, they totally are. They're very impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any strategies in which you kind of juggle? different things or any kind of philosophies that you've kind of that are shareable or kind of ways of looking at things in which kind of um, Um, parting thoughts if you will I think I think the thing we're heading towards about being a theatre maker is that you have to diversify in this country I think yeah but I used to think you have to diversify I just think in order to have a career you have to diversify now I go why would you not want to there's so many great things to do in the theatre. Why do you not want to teach and why do you not want to direct and why do you not want to design and why, do, like, how could you how could you not just pursue story in all of its forms? Like, how could you not do that? Um, so I think that's important at a, at a kind of um, a level of sustaining yourself through, through the industry, if that's what we want to call it. Yeah. Um, and then... You know, my my thing is about connection. It's this has come full circle. Haven't you done that well? About <laughs> com- community, community and connection. It's what I ca- what I care for on stage, and that doesn't mean people need to be connected on stage. It can be the absence of it, but yeah. it's how how actors affect it. It's about story being shared and how we communally share that. That's why the theatre for me is not going anywhere fast. Is you go like it's not going out of business is what I mean. Yeah. It just you know it, the way we tell that story, the way we're all on board with that, including the audience, is such a shared experience, and that is where I find my community now, and that is where I put value. I don't actually care a lot um, what people think of my work. My measure of success is have we achieved that, and we all walk away being better people or being, you know, having had this experience and understanding this or whatever. And then if people want to see that and respond to it, they can do what they like. But, you know, you can't control that. You can only make the kind of theatre that you would like to see. And so I do that and I hope that that has some resonance for other people. Yeah, and the idea of whether people relate to something or not is another, for themselves, is another huge conversation, isn't it, which is what I feel. Yeah, and I kind of I kind of go, when I go through things, I go, I know people feel this because I've read it in yeah. Arthur Miller and I've read it in Tennessee Williams and I go, so I know that what I'm feeling right now is relatable. So then I just trust that it probably all is yeah. at some level. That you go, we've all had this experience in some way. Yeah, and I just trust that. Well, I trust that probably everyone's been bloody loving hearing you talk about it. I'm just so appreciative that you made time to talk on the show. Thank oh, you I love so it. much. You know, I, I don't mind a good talk, as you know, and I wish you well because you're a bloody great writer and I can't wait to see all the wonderful things you're about to do. Mm, that's very generous. Thank you. All right, well, that was bloody fun. This has been Ramble City, a podcast of conversations with interesting people musing on art, life and their careers, created and produced by Old Fashioned Media. To hear more and discover additional material from today's episode, visit OFM.com. Listener.